like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Well, today is a, indeed a big day. And I'm not primarily talking about the 4.40 p.m. kickoff of the Dallas Cowboys, although that is big for some of us. And I'm not talking about the 9 p.m. premiere of season 5 of Downton Abbey tonight. Some of you have been, been waiting for this big day for some time. It's not a big day because of those things. Those are added bonuses for some of us. This is a big day because we've been planning for this day for quite some time. We've been praying for this day. We've been eagerly expecting this day for many months, for many weeks, and um, It's indeed a joy to be part of what God is doing. We've had the privilege of being a campus of Leonardtown Baptist Church for uh, since 2010, and and here it is now. We're standing. You're sitting. We're standing on our own feet as a church uh, today, and we are greatly indebted to our brothers and sisters at Leonardtown for uh, for their partnership in the gospel, for their uh, willingness, their selflessness to to cut us loose and to, 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 to launch us as a new congregation. And we very much are grateful for their partnership and continue to look forward to serving alongside of them in the, in the days to come. Well, whenever you think about a new church, now for the vast majority of you here today, this doesn't feel so new, does it? I mean, you've been part of this for some time. So when you're talking about new church, this just feels like another week. But we are a new church. Whenever you think about a new church being planted, there are always tons of questions. Lots of questions. Well, what kind of church is it? What are they about? What do they do? Who are they? Who are their leaders? How do their children's ministries work? What is, what's their youth ministry like? What, what do they have for adults? What, there are all these questions about a new church. And I'm sure there are many people in our community who are aware of our launch and, and are asking those types of questions. Indeed, some of you are here today, maybe for the first time, asking those kinds of questions. Some of you have been here since day one, and you're still asking some of those questions. Hopefully not so much. Well, what I want to do today is, starting today and beginning for the next, uh, really for three weeks, this starting today and for three weeks, is spend the next few Sundays seeking to address these kinds of questions through, through the, the name that we have, Redeeming Grace. What I want to do today is, is I want to, most importantly, look at the Scriptures and allow the Scriptures to, to bring to light some of the blessings and benefits of God's redeeming grace and what that means for individuals, what that means for us corporately as a church. Because when you think about Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, that name is loaded with meaning. It's not just a name we picked out of a phone book or Googled, hey, what's a cool church name? We did a lot of that. We did comparing and, and, and praying and, and thinking about what the name ought to be. And one of the re- reasons Redeeming Grace was one of our top picks and eventually became our name was because we wanted to be a church known for magnifying the redeeming grace of God through Jesus Christ in this community to the ends of the earth. That's what we want to be known for. Nothing wrong with geographical names. There's nothing wrong with, with all of the other names that churches have. But we wanted to be a church known for something. And let that be on display even in what we call ourselves. 
We exist. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you exist because of God's redeeming grace. You do. You don't exist as a Christian because you were smart and because you had enough um, willpower to, 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 to earn your way into heaven somehow. You exist because God was gracious to you. We exist as a family, uh, as a church, as a body of believers because God is gracious. God loves to, to grant hope. He loves to grant salvation and we exist because of God's redeeming grace and therefore we want to be a people known in this community and beyond this community all throughout Southern Maryland and beyond we want to be a people known for magnifying the redeeming grace of God displayed most clearly through the finished work of his son the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I begin this focus today I want us to take a look at a church in the New Testament that was an example that was an example of a of a people that had been redeemed, that had been rescued by this redemptive grace of God. And, and I want you to see, particularly today and in the coming weeks, the fruits of that redeeming grace in this particular church. And I want us to learn from that. I want us to see it as a model of sorts, as an example. And I want us to see how God's redeeming grace is not just, a, not just something we talk about, but rather it's something that bears fruits. It causes transformation to happen. Things happen when people encounter the redeeming grace of God in Christ. It's true individually. It's too true corporately. It was certainly true at the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a strategic port city in the north of GNC. It's modern-day Greece. You go there, and you can go and visit ruins there today. And, and it was a strategic place. The church of Thessalonica was founded... There, You can read about that in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul, I think it was on his second missionary journey, he goes there and others with him and does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue and he begins teaching and he begins explaining Jesus from the scriptures to them. And many were saved. Many people were converted and many people were irritated at the same time. The Thessalonican church was a church that was launched under great pressure. Paul goes there, he preaches, and he basically sees many people come to Christ, and he gets ran out of town. So the church, when it was started, it wasn't under peaceful conditions. And I'm not doing that as a, a comparison today. We certainly have uh, blessings. We're not being heavily persecuted in this location, in this, in this part of the world today, at least in the sense that some other brothers and sisters in Christ are. There are persecutions we endure, and I think those will increase Many people were saved in this strategic city, and a church is birthed. This church was birthed out of mission, and now it was a church that was on mission. We're actually going to talk more about that next week as we look about, look about how redeeming grace informs our mission. So 1 Thessalonians was a letter that Paul wrote soon after he was ran out of town in an effort to encourage the Christians, the new Christians in Thessalonica. He was there a while, wasn't as if he just preached one day and then was run out of town. He was there for some period of time, we know. But then he was run out of town, and, and now he's writing back because he's concerned about these new Christians. He wants to encourage them. He knows that there is hostility 
in their midst. He knows that they are being persecuted, that they're being attacked for their newfound faith in Christ. And so he, he's desperately wanting to communicate to them, to remind them of who they are in spite of all of the turmoil that surrounded them as new Christians. And so he writes with that, with that goal to encourage and to exhort them to stand firm in the midst of their trying, difficult times. So he begins this letter by, by recalling three characteristics of this new church. I want us to begin, as we consider 1 Thessalonians, I want us to, to hear verses 2 through 10 as, as I read that for us this morning. This is what the Word of God says. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became example, an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has go- and God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us, from the wrath to come. That is the word of God. So Paul begins this letter there in verse 3 by remembering certain traits, certain fruits of, that were born out of the, the, the experience of grace that they had. He, he says in verse 3, I remember your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. The gospel had produced these characteristics in this people. And now they were, they were a display of God's grace. In fact, we know from chapter 2, verse 9, Paul, Paul reminds them of the gospel work that took place among them. You read there, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, because of the gospel coming to them, because of the, the grace of God now being imparted to them, they were now living fruit of, of that gospel, of that good news. And Paul is identifying that, and he's recognizing that, that through the grace of God, there was now a difference in these people. Well, as I've said multiple times already this morning, we too, if you are in Christ, exist because of the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's no other explanation for your hope in Christ, your change, that internal change that has taken place in you, now the fruit that's being born in your life, there's no other explanation except the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. But the question we need to really seek to ask this morning and really in the weeks to come is what does redeeming grace produce what does it produce because what we're going to do is we're going to see example of that in in the church at Thessalonica we're going to see an example of a church that had been radically transformed a people that had been radically transformed by the redeeming grace of God and now there were certain things being being found characteristic of them certain characteristics that they 
had as Paul begins to unpack these blessings. And I want us to really look at two this morning, two primary blessings that we see is the fruit of God's redeeming grace in Christ. Two of them. Number one, we see first of all that redeeming grace gives us a new identity. (coughs) Redeeming grace gives us a new identity. The Thessalonians had been recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul came there, preached there, people were saved. People were transformed out of idolatry. No longer were serving their idols, they were now serving Christ, serving Jesus. However, as I said earlier, it wasn't long, you can read about this in Acts chapter 17 and 18, before the Jews of Thessalonica, the religious people, right, ran Paul and his and his friends out of town, and, and really they began to seek to cause disorder concerning the things that Paul preached. So Paul was gone, church, there was new Christians there, and they were still enduring difficulty after Paul's departure. So just imagine that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just new Christians just coming to Christ, and now there are people around you saying, the people that brought this message to you are phonies, they're, deceit, they're, they're deceptive, they've lied to you. And causing all of this chaos, and if you continue to walk in Christ, they're, they're, they're persecuting you. Can you imagine living in a day and living in a time like that? This is what the Christians at Thessalonica were experiencing. So these new believers were being put to the test. I mean, for some of them, they could have been tempted to think, what in the world has happened? Before Jesus, everything was fine. After Jesus, everything's in turmoil. Could have been tempted to think that. So Paul wants to encourage them. He had such a pastor's heart. He, he had such a shepherd's heart. He, he loved these people. He wanted to care for them, and he's doing that now through this letter. And he's remembering certain things about them that was produced because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he begins to, to address them through their newfound identity. Look at verse 4. <coughs> he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. There are two things right here that we see that mark out these people who have been identified here in this letter as recipients of the redeeming grace of God. Number one, they were people who were loved by God. They were loved. We, too, are loved by God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been the recipient of the wonderful redeeming love of God found in Christ Jesus. As Paul addresses them, he reminds them of this. You know, friends, I think that sometimes we lose the weight of what it means to be loved by a holy God. You know, there are a lot of things in the Christian life that we talk about a lot that I think sometimes we talk about so much that we lose the weight and the intensity of those truths. Can you just just actually listen to a couple other verses of Scripture that, that... that highlight the reality that we are a loved people. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, laid down his life for sinners, not for good people, for sinners, for wicked people. For ungodly people, for unrighteous people, while we were in that state, Christ 
loved us so much that he gave himself to die in our place, to take upon the judgment we deserved. John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. God is not a God who merely says he loves people. He demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ gave himself. He died for us. I love what A.W. Tozer said about the love of God. He said, the love of God is one of the great realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. But it is a personal, intimate thing, too. God does not love populations. He loves people. He loves not masses, but men. He loves us all with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no ends. God is a God who loves you. Friend, there is no greater reality than to know that the God of the universe, the perfect, holy, righteous God, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the one who put it all into place, no greater reality in the world that this one being loves you. That's not just a general love that he just loves. No, he loves particularly. He knows you by name. And he loves you in spite, in spite of your sin, in spite of my sin. We are loved. Second reality of verse 4 points out is that we are chosen. Another reality of those who've experienced God's redeeming grace is that we are a chosen people. It's important to remember that as sinners, as sinners we stand justly condemned before a holy God. God is holy, he's perfect, he's pure, he's blameless. We are sinful. We are rebels. We have rebelled against him. We deserve his judgment. But God's redeeming grace is a fact. It's a testimony to his electing grace. God's election is a reminder that our salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. God initiates our salvation. He's the one that begins it. He's the one that has called us to himself. He's the one that, 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 that appoints us to eternal life. Man, we could talk much more about that, but let me, just, let me just give you an Old Testament passage that talks about that even early on, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Talking about the people of God there in the Old Testament, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen to this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Love, chosen, right there it is. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But, here's the reason. It was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you with the house, or from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is a God who loves. God is a God who chooses. He's a God who brings us to himself. And, rather, and what we see here in, in 1 Thessalonians is that Paul's saying, listen, you have demonstrated this by how you live, by the, by the power of the gospel and by the way that you live. <coughs> Excuse me. We know, brothers, <coughs> loved by God, that he has chosen you because, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with 
full conviction. He's acknowledging the proof of their, of their salvation, of them being chosen by reminding them of how powerful the gospel came to them. The gospel was preached and it produced powerfully the power of the Holy Spirit. It's true change there. I mean, you're talking about idolaters now leaving their idols to worship and serve the true and living God. Friends, the gospel is powerful. Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the gospel is shared, whenever the gospel is on display, it doesn't need help. It is powerful. By by the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, using his wonderful good news to bring about salvation. The reason we want to always be celebrating the redeeming grace of God is because it's the only true hope that we have. I mean, friend, if you want to rely upon yourself, if you want to rely upon someone else, or if you want to rely upon your, your own good works, your own, your own attempt to try to somehow earn favor, earn approval with God, you're going to fail. You're not even going to get started. It's not going to work. But rather, the only hope that we have in this world is, the, is that God is a gracious God who loves to pardon the ungodly. The word grace, you think about grace, it has many meanings. In fact, it could refer to several things whenever you use the word. It could refer to a disposition of kindness, to be a person of grace. It could be a charming or an attractive trait. It could refer to an ease of movement or a short prayer at a meal. I'm not sure how that came about. If you call it, they'll say, Grace, that's fine. I'm just not sure. It never has made sense to me. <laughs> that's a, that was free. Um, it, also mean, it also has a reference of, of unmerited favor. And the grace that we speak about from the Bible is certainly a, a grace that is about unmerited favor. It has a redemptive quality. It has to do with God's unmerited favor that he extends to sinners. Friends, for us to even understand this grace, we we need to know that the reality of grace assumes a problem. It assumes that something is wrong. For grace to be extended in this way, this unmerited favor, it's assuming a problem. And, and, And so here's the issue. God... Is, is the perfect, righteous creator of the heavens and the earth. He, he created the world and everything that's in it. He, he made it all. He made it good, we're told in Genesis. He made man and woman in his image, and he said it was very good. It's a perfect world, a perfect environment. We were given dominion over the earth. We were to be his stewards. We know when we read the rest of the story that a serious problem occurred. The the couple in the garden in Eden willingly chose to ignore God's clear command and they ate from the forbidden tree. Can you imagine a world where there was one law and it was broken? At that moment, sin enters the world, the the perfect world that God created, 
And and it left Adam and Eve and all their descendants under this curse. All of us now are sinners. By nature and by choice, we've inherited the the guilt, we've inherited the sinful nature even of, of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so the reason that God's redeeming grace is so glorious is because that even though we are guilty rebels, all of us, God still loves us, and he delights in extending grace, and he willingly gave his son, his only son, his perfect son, to be slaughtered, to become a sacrifice, so that you could be rescued and redeemed, and not just rescued, but transformed. God God loves us in that way. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was the only one that was not impacted by this, by this fall, at least by having a sinful nature. He was a perfect man. He lived a, a perfect life, but yet he died a sinner's death on a cross, shedding his blood. His body was broken so that, so, that, so that we would not have to stand before a holy, righteous judge to be condemned. But for those who place their faith and their trust in him, they would receive salvation. They would receive hope. They would receive pardon be accepted, be adopted into the family of God and and redeemed. That's what redeeming grace is all about. We didn't deserve that, but God gave it to us. Later on, the scripture tells us that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. There's coming a day, friends, for those who are not in Christ, when it's going to be a serious, serious day. God is going to judge the nations. He's going to pour out his judgment. He's going to pour out his wrath upon those who have never trusted in Christ. And that will be an eternal judgment that they will endure. But friend, God is in the business of giving men, women, boys, and girls new identities. He's in the business of of granting new identity by extending grace. And you might be here today and know down deep, you know, you know down deep in your heart, that you are a sinner, and that were you to stand before a holy, righteous God right now, you would be condemned. There is someone in this room right now that knows that. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. What we talk about when we say redeeming grace is that God is in the business of extending his redeeming grace to sinners. That if you would simply look to him, Quit looking to yourself, quit looking to other people, quit looking for for acceptance in this world, but rather look to the one who has been accepted on your behalf. Look to Christ, rest in him, trust in him, believe in him, and you will have everlasting life. Your sins will be pardoned once and for all. You will be redeemed, you will be adopted in the family of God, you will be given the Holy Spirit, you will be rescued, you will be given a family, you will be put in a righteous standing before God simply by trusting in Christ. That is good news for you. You don't have to leave here today that, with that, that sense of condemnation. The Bible tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Trust in Him. You too can have new identity by placing your hope in the redemptive work of Christ. Redeeming grace brings new identity, number two. Redeeming grace produces a lasting change. Paul acknowledges the fruit of their faith by, by pointing to their faith, the love, the, the hope that they had back in verse 3. 
But not only does, does God's redeeming grace pro- provide this new identity, now we're, we're loved, we're chosen, we're, we're called to be part of the redeemed, we're, we're now part of the family of God, we have new identity. It, it also produces things in us that, that this process we call sanctification, but this process of transformation now happens in you if you have trusted. The grace that, that establishes our hope now informs and transforms the way we live. You can't separate the We're not just talking about a salvation that changes the end. It changes the now. changes the present. Notice several fruits of redeeming grace that is exemplified here in the Thessalonian believers. Number one, it enabled them to persevere. Verse 6. You became imitators of us, Paul says, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. In much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. Became imitators of the Lord. They persevered. These Christians had experienced many trials already, but now they had received the word. They received the word in much affliction. Listen, when the gospel was preached to them, get this, when the gospel was preached, and when Paul shared Christ with these people in Thessalonica, many believed They quit serving their idols. They began serving God. And many believed, but revival didn't break out. A riot broke out. That's kind of odd, isn't it? You think, well, all these people getting saved, it ought to be a celebration. Yes, indeed, it was in heaven, but not in Thessalonica originally. Riots broke out. Mobs were formed. People were run out of town. People were arrested. It was not a safe place to be for Christians, but the same grace that saved them, the same grace that gave them this new identity was the same grace that enabled them to persevere, to endure. They received the word under much affliction. They were being afflicted, they were being harmed, but they endured because of the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 5, because our gospel, we know they're loved and chosen because the gospel came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel was powerful so that the presence of the Spirit was there. Verse 6, again, you became imitators, received the word, and much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, the operative nature of the Holy Spirit was absolutely essential and critical to their perseverance. Listen, human joy will break down. It will not last. Just the least little trial that comes to your life will will, will snuff out your happiness, your joy. But joy that the Holy Spirit establishes is lasting. It endures afflictions. It endures hardships. It endures persecutions. It is this steadfast confidence that we have in Christ that transcends all of our difficulties. And it's a great reminder that when people come to Jesus, sometimes chaos breaks loose. Some of you have that testimony. You came to Christ and it it got harder for you, not easier. You give testimony right now of how that happened. If not, there will be at some point in your life when you will find it difficult to walk with Jesus. If you have been a Christian very long and if if, if you've not found it difficult to walk with Jesus, I would wonder if you're walking with Jesus. Because this world is not friendly to that. It's not accommodating to that. It's 
quite difficult to really truly walk with Christ. But listen, God's redeeming grace is not only redemptive, but it's sustaining. It, it will strengthen. It will hold you up even in the tough, toughest of times. And so it kind of is twofold. Redeeming grace enables perseverance, and perseverance is a demonstration that you've had redeeming grace. They go hand in hand. Number two, it empowers obedience. Somewhat similar to verse 6, but listen, verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I don't know if you've ever looked at a map, but we're talking about all of Greece. This little town, port town, where these Christians came to Christ under affliction and under hardships became an example. They became an example to not just the other Christians in Thessalonica, but to all the Christians in Greece in the whole region. People in Philippi, people in Berea, people in Corinth were being encouraged by the example of these believers walking in obedience to Christ. They became imitators of Paul, but most importantly, of the Lord. The grace of God that came to save them was now informing how they ought to live out their lives. Now listen, you have to get that in proper order. People confuse it all of the time. Good works and obedience is always a testimony to God's grace, not the cause of God's grace. Did you get that? Good works and obedience is always a testimony to God's grace in your life, never the cause of God's grace. You don't do and do and do to try to earn grace. Rather, you receive grace so that you can do to the glory of God. It empowers obedience. Friends, my prayer, my prayer is that Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, as imperfect as we are, that we would be a model, an example in our faithfulness, in our obedience to the Lord, that we would be an example for the believers in this community. Not that we're better than the others. We're not. We're sinners. But that we would be yet another example in this community of Christ-likeness. It's my prayer. Number three, it informs our mission. We're going to really talk about this next week, but I just want to say this in passing. Notice in verse 9, actually verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. These people that that were saved in, in Thessalonica, it just had a ripple effect on the entire region. Their faith became known everywhere. They, their gospel expanded. They were a church that was born out of mission through Paul's missionary journey, and now they were a church taking ownership in this mission as their faith was being spread everywhere. It informs our mission. Number, number four, it transforms our devotion. Number verse nine, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what salvation does. It changes you. It brings about repentance. It brings about transformation so that the things you were doing that were ungodly and that were foolish and that were rebellious are now put aside and you put on something new and you begin to serve the true and living God in faithfulness and righteousness. God's redeeming grace is transformative. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? Tell me. A new creation. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen, if you have truly encountered the redeeming grace of God in Christ, you will never be the same, ever. You won't. That means that if you trusted in Christ, at least say you've trusted in Christ along the way, and your life has not changed any, 
I'm not sure that you latched onto the gospel because the gospel changes people. Some faster than others, but it changes everyone that encounter the gospel. It's transformative. You'll never be the same when you encounter Christ. It's impossible for someone who's truly been converted by the grace of God to keep living in the same pattern of life. Absolutely impossible. Transforms our devotion. No longer do we worship ourselves and worship the idols of this world. We worship the true and living God. We serve Him. And then number five, it it redirects our focus. People who have truly encounter the redeeming grace of God in Christ. They live primarily for two things. They live for the glory of God today and the glory of God found in the coming of Christ in that coming day. I love what the great reformer Martin Luther used to say. You've heard me quote him before, probably the same quote. He said he had two days on his calendar. Today and that day. Friends, listen. There are too many people in this world, even people in our churches, that the only day on their calendar is today. The only person that they live for is themselves. That is not what redeeming grace produces, but rather it produces a heart that is changed so that you begin living for someone that's greater than you, that, that you begin living for the glory of God and not for the glory of self. You begin living for Yes, you live in this day, you live today, but you live today in light of the coming day of Christ when he comes again and brings us to himself and makes all things new. It redirects our focus. We no longer live for the present, but rather we have an eternal perspective. Listen to what he says in verse 10. He, and to wait for his son from heaven, who raised, he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Listen, Christ is coming again. He's coming again to bring us to himself. And believers who've been transformed by the grace of God eagerly look forward to his return because we know that this will be the the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. what What days are on your calendar? Where's your focus? You know, friends, redeeming grace is so much more than a name. It is. Now, we like the name. But it's so much more than that. Redeeming grace is the very lifeline of your soul. It's the only hope you have in this world. That God loved us enough that he sent his only son, his only son to be sacrificed in our place So that if we would just trust in him, we would be transformed, we would be rescued. Friends, apart from redeeming grace, there is no life. Apart from redeeming grace, there would be no hope for this world. There would be no reason to endure trial. There would be no reason to grow in godliness, to turn from idols, to await for the coming of our king. The reason we joyfully call ourselves redeeming grace is because that's exactly what we want to be known for. I don't know about you, but I want to be known as a person and as a people that's all about the redeeming grace of God in Christ. We want to be a church that celebrates this wonderful grace that God has lavished upon the world. We want to be a people that proclaims His grace to others around us. 
We want to be a corporate display of God's redeeming grace in this community. Friends, God forbid that people would only know us by a name or a title. But may they know us because of a person. That redeeming grace is most exemplified in, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you know God's redeeming grace, and many of you do, then it's my prayer that we would join hands together in this newly planted work, and that we would strive, and that we would work, and that we would be found faithful as God's ambassadors, proclaiming redeeming grace, starting in our families, expanding to our neighbors, going to the community, going to the easy places and the hard places, going to the workplace, going to the school, wherever, wherever we're called to go, that we would go into this community and beyond, saturating this culture, saturating this community with the only hope that this world has, and that is Christ. Friends, we want to be a church known for magnifying the redeeming grace of God. We want to see men, women, boys, and girls from every background, every color, every level of income, every identity, every shape, every size, every age, every everything come to know Christ, to be gathered in his body, to proclaim his praises, and to be sent out on mission with him. That's what we want to be. And we want to see more of us, more churches started by the grace of God and for the glory of God. Friend, that's who we are. That's who we are. But what about you? What about you? What's your story? What's your story? Have you encountered the redeeming grace of God in Christ Jesus? If not, Today is a fantastic time to do that. We don't want to merely introduce you to Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, but most importantly, we would love the honor and the privilege of introducing you to the redeeming grace found in Jesus Christ. Would you look to him? Would you place your hope in him? Would you trust in him? If you've never trusted in Christ, if if you continue in your sin, would you look to Christ today and be saved, be rescued? And that is your hope. That is our hope. That is what we are about to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the work that you've done in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of compassion, that you are a God of mercy, that you are good, that you are generous, that you are loving, that you, that you pardon the guilty. And Lord, today we we stand here, we, we gather here to celebrate that work that you've done in Christ. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to be a people that are built upon your redeeming grace? Would you help us to be a people that display your redeeming grace? Would you help us to be a people that magnify the glory of Christ to this lost world? Lord, it's not, we would be a failure if we merely came in here week after week and just kept this good news to ourselves. Lord, would you help us to celebrate when we are together? Would you help us to be overwhelmed together as your body, as your people? But Lord, overwhelmed to the point of of leaving here this day and and going to our, our mission field to point people to this hope that we have in Christ. Lord, there are many people, many people that need to hear, that need to know 
that need this transformation. God, would you help us to be found faithful in that? Father, would you continue your work of grace in our midst? Lord, we know that the redeeming grace is redemptive. It brings salvation, but Lord, it also brings change. I pray, Father, that you would continue your work of transforming grace, sanctifying grace in our midst. Lord, that you would continue to break the shackles of sin in our lives, that you would help us to continue in a pattern of repentance, that we would see progress in our lives, Lord, that we would look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. Father, would you do that work for your glory? God, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what you've done. I'm grateful for what you're doing, and I'm grateful for what you will do. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts? Lord, would we be a people that know your grace, that celebrate your grace, that proclaim your grace to your glory? pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, and the Lord leads you to respond this morning. Maybe you want to come pray. Maybe you want to come share and speak with someone. We'd love to invite you. You respond however the Lord leads you today. Don't leave here. Don't leave here without knowing for sure that you've been a recipient of God's grace.